Hi, this is Jack Vinson, and you're listening to the Agile Uprising Podcast. Greetings and welcome to another in the Agile Uprising podcast. I'm your host again, Jay Hersko. Join with me, I have the president of our UK chapter, Mr. Sam Hogarth. Sam, good afternoon. Oi, oi. Hello. Glad to have you. Glad to have you. So what are we talking about this week? So we're building on a bit of a series here that's unintentional, where we as the group, we're, we're dusting off all these old tomes and all these old ideas. And we're starting to realize that as not only just as Agile practitioners, but as professionals, we've kind of screwed up the translation. In, in a lot of different things. We've talked on, Troy had an episode where he talked about Little's Law and how it's completely misused. Uh, Chris Merman and I did an episode on scientific management and how we we totally missed how to read into that and blaming Taylorism. This week, Sam and I are going to go into, I, I don't want to call it the genesis of Waterfall, but it's what Ella Waterfall points back to. We're going back to Dr. Winston Royce's paper on managing the development of large software systems. So, this thing has been around for, you know, uh, what, 50 years now. Everybody references it. Everybody references it in a bad light. But I think we kind of missed the plot. Would you agree, Sam? Yeah, on this, the, the cake is a lie. If you, like us nerds, if you go back and you actually read this thing, a lot of people will call this the waterfall document. You know, there are universities that still teach, hey, Winston Royce in 1970 developed the waterfall method, all this kind of stuff. If you read the paper and we'll go through it, you'll find out this guy was not advocating for a waterfall mm-hmm. method at all. In fact, he was saying, stay back, run away. Here are some things I can think of that will try and make this better. Yes, yes. And and it's amazing how we have completely butchered it. So uh, if anyone doesn't have a copy of this, I'll put a link in the show notes. It's a PDF. It's freely available everywhere. Um, and and so the interest, the first thing I picked up on, Sam, is the actual introduction where he says, I am going to describe my personal views about managing large software systems. So he's not saying that this will work for everybody. He's saying, this is my personal views. And then he goes into detail with, I have had various assignments during the past nine years, mostly conservative development of software packages for spacecraft mission planning, commanding, and post-flight analysis, right? This is some real heady hardware, software, middleware type stuff. This isn't building a building a UI so I can scrape my iTunes history, right? Um, and then he says, in these exper- assignments, I've experienced different degrees of success with respect to arriving in an operational state on time and within costs. I have become prejudiced by my experiences and I'm going to relate some of these prejudices in these presentations. So right there, he sets the tone. I mean, that's how all academic papers should should start with the Liam Neeson taken quote. I have a very particular set of skills. <laughs> very true. Very true. This is my point of view. This is what I've noticed. And going back to Taylor and the principles of scientific management, that's how he describes, look, I done these observations. I have done these experiments, which it, it, it shouldn't, it shouldn't take away from the published work, but it should make you, you should put it in context that look, this is one person's subjective experience based upon their you know, their experience and what they're doing, keep it in mind. So, and again, uh, the other funny thing is this, <clears throat> this also came through the IEEE, which is the International Electricians, you know, Engineering Org, which I think is also what Taylor came through. So uh, digging in, Sam, 
Uh, so there's a lot of graphics on these pages where he talks about, he, he draws what we think of the waterfall. Um, and he thinks about, well, here's your typical steps when you deploy some, some program. I started, when I started reading through some of the things I highlighted was the first thing that I, that jumped out for me where, um, where he talks about the having to redo something. So you get to a certain point and then you need to go back and redo it. He's, and his quote is, the required design changes are likely to be so disruptive that the software requirements upon which the design is based and which provide the rationale for everything are violated. In effect, the development process is returned to the origin and one can expect up to 100% overrun in schedule and or costs. Anybody who's ever done a waterfall project knows this is this is what happens to us. Yeah, right. The guy, the guy gets it. Yeah. totally gets it. <laughs> the core, get pre it. the core premise of the article is that throughout a waterfall process, a linear sequential process, risk accumulates, and the place where that is going to come to a head is right at the end, when the the risk of, well, if there is a risk and you have to do something about it you may have to go completely back to the drawing board. Hang on, this design fundamentally doesn't work and it's not going to work. Right, right. So in these diagrams, he has figure three, which I, which is what Johanna Rothman was on our Discord chat and she was banging the drum about because she's 100% spot on. The thing that we miss is he has feedback loops written into, designed into every single step. So soft, system requirements feed software requirements, but then loops back. Software requirements feeds analysis, but then loops back. So that the, those feedback loops that we in the Agile world or us, us Agilistas like to talk about, this is not new. Winston Royce was talking about this when doing what we would consider critical critical path project management. Yeah, half, half a century ago, this guy was saying, look, risk accumulates through your process. And the way that you handle that is by incorporating feed lab, feedback loops. And he says to maximize the event of early work that is salvageable and preserved. Right, now that, right. The article, it does show its age in some respects. Mm -hmm. It is predicated on, look, there is a thing with a definitive endpoint that we are building. And look, if you're doing spacecraft or whatever, that kind of makes sense. So you do have to see it in the, in the context in which it was written. But that doesn't mean that we throw all of this paper out because yeah, this, this guy understands that a linear process is not, well, he says it, it's risky and it invites failure. Yes, yes. And he risk is a big thing. And and back to Taylor, even in his studies, he talked about the risk of doing the process the wrong way is you lead to waste, you lead to burnout, you lead to inefficient allocation of capital. Um, it's, it's kind of funny how we just keep repainting the same things over and over again, but put a different badge on it. So he goes through, at one point, Sam, he says, uh, he believes that the five steps that he he that that Royce suggests we need to follow in order to mitigate or eliminate as much risk as possible. And I, I, some of these I think we can we can glance through, but some of them I think we're going to want to go in on because I, I want to get to your opinion. So the first thing, the first thing he talks about is his first step is program design comes first. So when I think of that in our agile world, right, I think of the whole strategic themes, decomposing into epics, decomposing into features, you're not fully baking every nuance, every ticked and tied corner, but you are thinking roughly, here's the thing I want to build in the order I want to go in. So back when I was 
learning to be a software developer, I was very lucky to have an excellent trainer who said to me, Sam, what you need to understand is that scope doesn't creep, understanding grows. Bravo. In, in software, the complexity emerges as we do the work. And this is why we struggle with estimates. It's why we struggle with, you know, discovering all these little gremlins and all these bugs and all the kind of edge cases that we don't initially plan in. And yeah, I was reading this section on the preliminary program design and thinking, you know what, a lot of this sounds like Kent Beck's XP, just in mm -hmm. 1970s lingo. The preliminary program design is about understanding your operating context. So he's saying, do this stuff before you get into the the detailed analysis on the on the business or on the commercial side, understand what is the system you're going to build? Are you designing it for 10 users, a million users? What hardware are you thinking of running this on? Putting and it, the, the phrase he uses is impose constraints, but it's talking about what we would now say is the work of a solution architect defining operability concerns, non-functional requirements, we bizarrely sometimes call them, the system communication, coherence with the organizational standards and governance, all that stuff that nobody really thinks of just until we're about to go to production. Right. He said, hey, actually. Has InfoSec looked at this? Has InfoSec yeah. looked at this? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, the word you use there is, um, uh, was I thought very, very telling when you talked about understanding your context, right? Like that's what this comes down to. So again, in our, in our agile centric world, we think of things like when you're launching a release train in safe, the first thing you do is understand your value streams. If you're not doing safe, if you're just doing plain old agile, you want to understand what is, again, what does the value stream look like? <laughs> what is the context you're working in? How, how do the pieces fit and how does the, how do the handoffs happen? This is common sense isn't common, right? And one of my first bosses told me that one. Common sense isn't common. He also told me you can't expect anyone to read, listen, or pay attention. And he wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong. Um, <laughs> but, but that idea of, I think maybe Sam people, the, the, the agile side of the house gets hung up on the term program design where we're not designing it. You're understanding the context in which you are working. And one of the, the one line in this whole section that I highlighted, which I thought was very, very prescient is he, he talks about um, starting a design process with program designers. Again, this is from the seventies one. And then one of the next lines is design to find and allocate the models. And then he, this is the, the, the money quote here, even at the risk of being wrong. And I think that is a remarkably thoughtful remark uh, uh, statement to make because it goes back to how the Marines, when the Marines make battle plans, they make a battle plan based upon what they know and they're expected to execute and change because the battlefield is fluid. It's the same, like you said, with with understanding growing. You yeah, you may be wrong, but you at least want to have that frame of reference to say, oh, this was totally off. We got to chuck it or maximize what we can retain. Sixty percent of this here makes sense. Yeah, I I see it as like if you're going to go outside and you're thinking, is it going to be warm today? Is it going to be super super hot, or is it going to start raining later on? You might as well wear a coat. It's easier to take it off than it is to go out and buy a coat if you went out without one and get caught in the rain it is better it is better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it as someone who has traveled to the pacific northwest and had to buy numerous raincoats because i never forget to pack one that rings true the the last part of this sam which i i think this is where the people listening are probably gonna start yelling at the their cell phones he talks about 
writing an overview document document write an overview document that is understandable informative and current each and every worker must have an elemental understanding of the system at least one person must have a deep understanding of the system which comes partially from having had to write an overview document now we we look at documentation as an anathema if i'm gonna if i'm gonna smooth the averages out right everybody no 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 don't waste time however i can see where especially in a in a hardware software firmware environment you need this. It's almost like a anchor, right? A grounding to say, look, this is what we're doing. This is what we're thinking of. I mean, the analog I would think for in the Amazon world is they start with the FAQ and the product announcement, right? I would think that's almost a grounding document in itself. What do you think? So the structure of, of Royce's document, if you want the, the TLDR version, is that he says, look, waterfall is risky, and then he proposes a series of mitigations to that risk. And so the first one was the preliminary program design. And another one is he talks about documentation. I know the manifesto says working software over comprehensive documentation. Royce advocates for, quote, quite a lot of documentation. And I'm willing to give him some leeway on this because documentation is important in software development. Code cannot unambiguously describe everything. So one thing that Royce calls out is document your decisions, which is yes. really, really crucial because it's so easy to shit upon the work of people who've come before you, but you don't understand why they made those decisions, what they were trading this decision off against, what alternatives did they pursue? And that's not just we had this meeting, but it's also, you know, there's architectural decision records, a lightweight format for capturing. Big hey, we're going to, yeah, we're going to, we're going to implement this in this way in TypeScript. We're not using JavaScript because we think it sucks. But at least if you capture that, I can go back if I'm new to a team and say, right, I understand the context of the decisions that you made. Where I, I kind of move away from how he sees documentation is just because you write something down doesn't mean everybody is going to have the same interpretation. Mm -hmm. You know, you can take any, it doesn't have to be a religious text, but you can take any text, Harry Potter, for instance, and everybody will take a different interpretation from that text. So it is important to document things, but that cannot become a proxy for shared understanding. And I think in the time we've had since this article, we have learned a lot of different techniques for, for gaining and facilitating a shared understanding. I, I'm thinking about things like behavior-driven development, example mapping, these kind of techniques which allow us to not just pass documents off between functional silos. So the, the analysts write what they think the system should do as a line item saying the system shall and that's handed over to a developer who has to interpret this to code. Mm -hmm. It's then handed over to a tester who has to piece all this together. But so I, I see documentation as something that should be promoted, but it is in a more collaborative nature. And you're right to call out Amazon, you know, are, are quite documentation heavy. They have their six pages. They have famously sessions where they sit down and read the document in a meeting in silence before they start talking about Which, it. If you've ever tried to do that, Sam, I tried to do that a previous job and it failed miserably because everyone was so uncomfortable, but that makes the whole silent reading of the memo for five minutes. And then we have a discussion. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, 
there's there's certainly some stuff in here that shows its age, but I think he's he's approaching things in a sensible way. And one more thing around in this bit about documentation is he points out that um, documentation to separate developers and operations is a good idea because he says of developers generally these people are relatively disinterested in operations and do not do as an effective job <laughs> as operations oriented personnel well the industry's kind of moved in the opposite direction these mm -hmm. days and maybe that's because we we've removed this notion of there's a thing that we're building yes yes towards maintenance you know like with web distribution or mobile app distribution we build and maintain our stuff and so we do have to think about things a bit more holistically and i want to call out sam the line before the line you just read was the one i highlighted where he makes he makes the point for devops without meaning to make the point for devops when he says without good documentation the software must be operated by those who build it so I'm a big believer in just enough, not just because when it comes to documentation, I don't think it's anathema. I think it's a necessary evil that does help. Like I, the older I get, Sam, I'm going to be honest with you. The older I get, the first thing I do when I get a new appliance, I read the fucking manual. I read the manual. I never thought I'd hear myself say that. Usually you just plug it in and go. Now I'm like, oh, let me understand. So I think, I think he was onto something there, whether he didn't realize it or not, he was onto without proper documentation and maybe actual created the necessity of the DevOps movement because we shied so hard away from, from documentation. We, 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 we made our own bed and then we were forced to lie in it. You know what? I've, so I'm a full-time employee now, but I've done most of my career as a consultant. And that puts you in the mindset of, I'm not going to be around forever. I may not even be around next month because when you're, in an external relationship like that, you can get shit canned at the drop of a hat. And so you need to make sure that your stuff is evergreen. You need to make sure that whoever comes in after you can actually look after this thing and become productive in it. Otherwise, the documentation will get produced later, but it will be done at a type of urgency, right. which is never the best way to do that stuff. Right. And things that are what one person sees as not vital to the forward success of this, this creation, this solution, may actually be a, a, a pivot point and maybe a, the pinnacle of something. And because I didn't think it was important, I didn't write it down. Sam, if you and I both had a dollar for every time we heard a software engineer, a tester, an architect say, why did they do this this way? We would be rich, right? So taking it back to your point about ADRs and understanding why decisions have been made. Um, I like the one line he had here where he said, an acceptable written description forces the designer to take an unequivocal position and provide tangible evidence of completion. It prevents the designer from hiding behind the quote, I am 90% finished, unquote, syndrome month after month. I can't disagree with that, right? Like it forces you to make what could be a sliding scale of completion into almost a binary. Is it done or is it not? Well, it's done, but it's not done, done. Oh, okay, well, then we get into that argument writing stuff down is is thinking and personally i i've got a remarkable tablet in front of me i'm capturing notes from this conversation i i do a lot of writing because it forces you to take a position on things it really challenges do you actually understand what it is you're saying because if we apply the 80 20 rule to somebody when they say i'm 80 percent done how much is 
is, mm -hmm. is it 80% of the easy stuff? Is that remaining 20% actually all the difficult, time-consuming stuff? It really forces you to work through a problem. And so I there's a really great document called Encouraging a, Committing, a Culture of Written Communication. And it is one of the most transformational documents that I've read as a developer. And it made me appreciate documentation more than I initially had. I know the manifesto says this over that, and it does have that caveat to say, that is, we value the stuff on the, you know, on both sides, mm -hmm. we just value one side more. But it does kind of crystallize that actually, we are not disregarding what came before us. We need to see both sides and make value judgments on where our time is appropriate. Right. So right. Work, working software over a status document that says we're, we're green. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with that. But working software alone compared to working software with maybe a, a recorded video of somebody talking through the architecture at a high level, absolutely nothing wrong with that. Right. Right. It's, it's not a, it's not a binary. It's a little bit of, and you're right. There is the, the caveat at the bottom, the wording kind of throws you off. Um, I, I actually just looked up that encouraging a culture of written communication. I've never read that. I'm going to read that uh, when we're done here, but anybody who's ever followed the work of Edward Tufte, he, he does a two day course. He actually does a one day course. And if it comes to your, to comes to your city, if it comes to your country, I tell everybody go to it. For the cost of the course, you get all of his books. If you were to buy all of his books by themselves, it's like $100 more than the course. But he talks about the written word being the most high fidelity form of communication possible. So I always have that in the back of my mind. And I, I recently read a book by Antonio Damaso called Descartes' Error, where it talks about the idea of the human and the brain and how we work and how we model ourselves and you know how are things stored and how do we think. But one of the interesting tidbits when they go into the, to the, neuro, uh, the neurobiology of it is our brains, when we say something, when we write something, and when we when we read something, it's three different paths in the brain. So they tell you if you really want to remember something, you need to read it, you need to say it out loud, and you need to write it down. So the, I am I you can kind of see my whiteboard over here. It's just the pastiche of post-its and quotes and one-liners because things I want to remember, I make sure I write them down because I, I, I come back to them all the time. So you know, productivity tip for everybody. Um one of the interesting things, Sam, moving ahead to the, to his next step, which I thought was a really fascinating take, it's called do it twice is the step. And the quote that I pulled was, if the computer program in question is being developed for the first time, arrange matters so that the version finally delivered to the customer for operational deployment is actually the second version insofar as critical design operations are concerned. I, I think that was amazing can we can we recreate it can we do it again off of what we know and our our documentation can we build it again to make sure that this truly is solid um and anybody who would argue well we don't have the time for that we we can spin up and i i could sam could get out his, his atm card right now we could spin up an amazon instance during this recording why would you not take the time to okay let me try and do that again if you're working in small enough chunks we do that again did that really work hey here's my notes sam can you recreate what i just did that makes total sense to me. And I wish we would emphasize that a little bit more. It's the whole Toyota loom story where they, they spent all that time building the loom and the loom was stolen. And when everybody was upset that the loom was stolen, uh, Toyota came out and said, well, yeah, they stole the loom, but they didn't get our learning. Big, big flashing yeah. light on that one. Yeah, exactly. And 
again, this sounds really XP in nature with rapid prototyping. And I, I quite like that he, he uses the term simulation. Mm -hmm. And the reason is so that one can perform experimental tests of key hypotheses. So this is removing these ego-driven decisions. And it's actually, it's firing a tracer bullet through your process and understanding what are the things, where are the hotspots of, of activity or the mm -hmm. hotspots of risk? What can we learn from that? And what can we incorporate into the actual thing? It's not just do the first thing that comes to mind, which the linear sequencing kind of implies. And yeah, I wish more people would do this kind of stuff. We, it's, it's a little bit different to an MVP. You hear people say that you shouldn't call a minimum viable product a minimum viable product. You should call it a minimum viable product experiment because mm -hmm. you're just literally testing, is there any interest in this kind of stuff? And many people would advocate that you throw that code away. And for various economic reasons, people choose not to do that. They'll choose, well, we've built something, it's in production, let's build on top of it. And then they realize later on they've got scalability issues because this brand new tech that some magpie developer chose because it's cool <laughs> isn't actually fit for purpose. But if you deliberately set this up as an experiment and you could see we've got this tech, we want to use it, is it going to perform at scale? Whoops, no, okay, we factor that in. And then we come to build the real thing, we've learned that, and we're not going to then have to pay loads of money putting train tracks in front of the train as the train's moving. Right, right. Um, <clears throat> I recently listened to an interview uh, on the Tim Ferriss show with John Romero, uh, no relation to George, the zombie guy, who was one of the original creators of Doom. He was one of the four at ID Software that built that built Wolfenstein. They built Doom, and he talked about this all the time about how they were they were they were literally building the tracks to put the train on as they were building the train. And he talked about there were a lot of times where they would build it, they would use it. They would, they would try and, okay, what do we learn? Can we recreate this? And they would toss stuff. And he goes into this long, uh, he goes into a one part of the interview, I should put it in the show notes if I remember, where he talks about for Wolfenstein 3D, they built an entire function, a player function that they chucked because they built it and it worked. And they said, but this doesn't fit what we're trying to do. So the whole, uh, I think Jardina London, uh, when I interviewed her, she talked about, you need to design for redesign. Having that in your mind, like you're going to learn. And I love that idea Sam. okay, we built this web app once. It took us two days. Can we build it again in a day? And then what, what are we going to learn on the second time? What, what economically I could actually make that argument really well, that you're going to come out with a better, leaner product, less tech debt, less cruft. It's going to be simpler, easier to support. Um, maybe that's part of the next movement. We got to, you know, build it twice. That'll be, you know, uh, we need to come up with an acronym there. <laughs> So the next step, Sam, which I think was uh, another interesting part of this, is he talked about plant control and monitor testing. And he and he really doubles down on the importance of testing. Um, you don't inspect quality out. You build quality in. He says that in, in, his, in his own way. Again, the, it's 1970s uh, verbiage. But uh, he actually is – you don't want to talk about how this is a big XP influence. He advocates for pair programming without saying pair programming. Yes. Yeah, he does. And I, I, I get the impression, maybe I'm giving him too much leeway, I don't know, but I, I sense from this document, he understands that testing is a continual activity. I don't think he quite gets to that point because he still says that there is a explicit testing phase at the end. Mm -hmm. But he does note that 
you know, the earlier stages are, quote, aimed at uncovering and solving problems before entering the test phase. So I see testing as a fundamental concept as clarifying assumptions rather than making a judgment on quality. So you, you're testing a product if you're asking questions. But this is why stuff like example mapping is so good because you can ask a lot of questions that you could, as a developer, uncover through TDD or through as a tester by running an end-to-end -end test, but you can do it when you're still in the early analysis and formation stage. And you're helping people understand the impacts of what they're doing and help them make the right trade-offs of we're explicitly not going to handle this or we are going to handle this rather than, oh shit, we didn't think of this at all and now mm -hmm. we have to make a decision. So I, I, I do feel that on some level he, he gets it around testing, but I still think that, yeah, and maybe it's, maybe it's the, the predicate that there is a thing that is being built and so you need that final step of quality assessment what he mentions is during the early phase of software development the documentation is the specification and is the design until coding begins these three nouns documentation specification design denote a single thing and I, I don't think that's that really holds true anymore. I think mm -hmm. that's Agreed. I think that's where, where time has moved on. But he does see testing as a means of of gaining feedback and reducing risk. Agreed. Some of the stuff he says, like like you, you called out peer review and pair programming. Another thing he kind of calls out automated testing as well, with test every logic path in the computer program at least once with some kind of numerical check. Now we all know 100% code coverage in and of itself is not. It's not optimal, let alone desirable. And you could be, you know, putting a big wrapper unit test around your block of code. I mean, you're cheating there. Yeah. But you can you can see what he's getting at. He he's saying that you know, look, you need to you need to build this quality in. You need to understand how your application is actually performing for realsies, not just theoretically. Right, right. What what happens when I pour water through this this pipe? <clears throat> Where are the leaks? And his last step, which I mean, somebody's going to argue somewhere that this should have been first. But I mean, the fact that he calls this out in 1970 is very, very telling. His last step is involve the customer. And uh, and then, but I also liked how he says. I mean, maybe he's coming about it through a different way. He says it is important to involve the customer in a formal way so that he has committed himself at earlier points before final delivery. That ties to everything we preach with get the customer involved early, fast feedback loops, small chunks of work, have them um, committed and involved. Again, he was he was onto it. He, he knew it. Um, uh, avoiding, you know, uh, avoid wide interpretation after previous agreement. I mean, he, spot on. I just think of Homer Simpson where he gets to build that car. And comes <laughs> out with the, the worst cobbled together piece of shit that nobody wants. Oh, and, my God. You know, we, We've we've all we've all had situations where we've built exactly what the client asked us to do, and now that they've seen it, they don't want that. And yeah, that that is a huge risk again because you could produce them a fully working, tested, guaranteed to fail product that mm -hmm. could not have the market impact that you want, and that is still a fundamental risk. And the way that you mitigate that risk is through customer involvement. In in XP, it's called the on-site customer. Again, this is all. 
this is all stuff that's been there since the 70s. <laughs> right, right. And here we are reinventing it, putting new badging on it. Um, <clears throat> and to close, Sam, he puts everything in a summary. And much like his introduction, he says, um, this summarizes the steps I feel necessary to transform a risky development process into one that will provide the desired product. I would emphasize that each item costs some additional sum of money. If a relatively simpler process without the five complexities described here would work successfully, then of course the additional money is not well spent. So he's basically saying, here's my process. Here's what I suggest. If you have a smarter way to do it that won't cost as much, that still gets you successful, why would you follow this? Uh, and then he said, I, in my, in my experience, however, the simpler method has never worked on large software development efforts and costs to recover far exceed those required to finance the five-step process and said, and he's probably, in our experience, he's probably right. He's probably yeah. right. So Sam, let me ask you this. Um, if you had to pitch, uh, you had to pitch a software developer, you had to pitch someone you're coming across to somebody who's maybe even new to the agile world and they're finding all these fascinating things. How would you explain to someone why they need to read this? What would be your sales pitch, the convincing argument to like, look, you need to read this because what? So it's basically read the classics and think of this stuff for yourself. But I think the main, the main reason is to demonstrate how we can have preconceptions about things that just are not based in reality whatsoever. I, like I said at the start, I, I quickly Googled Royce Waterfall. I found a university page, I'm not gonna call them out, which was saying that Royce developed the waterfall method. That's not what the paper says. You'd mm -hmm. expect ac academics <clears throat> to get that right. And you can still learn stuff from these, from these documents. Grant, they have, they have aged. We all do, but you can you can see the trends. You can see the problems that they were trying to solve in the context that they were trying to solve them. You can see the thinking. And if you're a historian, I think this is an essential part of learning our craft. It's learning where we came from. Right, right. And I, I'm not going to try and put an ending quote better than that. I want to thank Sam for taking time out of his afternoon to join us. I want to thank. All <laughs>